if you look back on Baptist history, not just in CBF, but beyond CBF, you know, as we move through the 20th century, so much of Baptist cooperation was programmatic. I think our cooperation now is moving more toward explicitly missional engagements and much more toward the relational. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Paul Baxley, the new executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Paul was elected to the role in January and officially started serving in March. I had a chance to sit down with him last month as he was at First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri. He was getting ready to speak to the congregation. He's been traveling around, introducing himself, getting to know other Cooperative Baptists. And so I was thankful to have the opportunity to have this interview with Paul to talk a little bit about who he is, his vision for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and some of the key issues facing Baptists today. This week is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's General Assembly in Birmingham, Alabama. I will be there covering it for Warren Way, and also will be speaking on a workshop on the importance of press freedom. But for those who can't make it, I hope that you enjoy this opportunity to learn a little bit more about the new Executive Coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. So here's my interview with Paul Baxley. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you. So for our listeners who are not part of CBF Life, how would you describe the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? I would describe the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship as a community of congregations and individuals who come together to do some work in the world and for our congregations that we cannot do on our own. So I think congregations are drawn to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship because they sense a call to be part of our global mission in the world. Congregations come to Cooperative Baptist Fellowship because we recognize we need to be in community with other congregations so we can learn from each other and bless each other and strengthen each other and encourage each other. I think many of our congregations recognize that we need to be part of a community of congregations in order not just to call new generations of women and men to serve as ministers in our congregations, but also to make sure that they receive the preparation in and beyond seminary and divinity school that's required for faithful ministry in challenging and changing times. So I don't think congregations come to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship because they believe that all of us think the same way about all things. Or Baptists. That's because we're Baptists. That's right. I think congregations are drawn to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and individuals are drawn to Cooperative Baptist life because they want to be part of a faith community that's larger than their own. They sense a call to engage God's mission, not only in their communities, but around the world. 
and they recognize that for excellence and vitality in ministry, we need to be in relationship with each other. Now, I know that you just moved into this role as CBF executive coordinator a few months ago. Uh, you're traveling around to the various states. That's why you're coming through Missouri right now. I know I've seen from some of my friends on Facebook, you've been what, in Texas yes. and Arkansas. And- Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina. Got a trip to the Northeast later this week. Going to be in Alabama next week. So, yeah, getting around a little bit. There you go. And, and part of that, of course, is you're going around to kind of introduce yourself. Again, that's like right. I said, you've been involved in CBF Life, but not everyone knows who you are. And that's part of what you're doing is both introducing yourself and being introduced to CBF leaders around the country. So so who is Paul Baxley? Who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> I was born and raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My father taught math for almost four decades at Wake Forest University. And my mother became an elementary school teacher. So I come from a family of educators, but my parents are both deeply committed Christians, deeply committed Baptist Christians. Some of my earliest childhood memories involve being in church and significant experiences that I had in church, both at Wake Forest Baptist Church, where we spent my first 10 years of life, and then First Baptist Church on Fifth Street in Winston-Salem, where I went to church as a middle and high school student and college student uh, when I went to Wake Forest University. So... I came to faith in Christ and first started to sense a call to ministry very much in congregations and very much under the influence of ministers who remain compelling role models for me, even to this day. I graduated from Wake Forest in 1991 with a growing sense that I was called to ministry, but also with a deep sense of uncertainty about where I should go next. Because as Baptists of many different communities will remember, there was a lot of change in Baptist life in the American South in the 80s and early 1990s. And so I really felt like I had to be prayerful and intentional about what next steps I took toward a life in ministry. I ended up backing into Duke Divinity School. I wish I could tell you that I had known all along I would go to Duke and it was going to be good for me and the Holy Spirit worked through that decision. But basically, I ended up at Duke because a church in northeastern North Carolina, First Baptist Center in North Carolina, called me at the ripe old age of 23 without any seminary training to be their associate minister for youth and Christian education. And the covenant of call I negotiated with them was that after I started there, I could start seminary at Duke Divinity School because I knew I needed more preparation for ministry. So while I was in Divinity School at Duke, I not only had the chance to meet Baptists from other denominational backgrounds, I also got to study with Christians from all over the world and Christians of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so at a very pivotal time in my ministry formation, I simultaneously became more decidedly Baptist and more unapologetically ecumenical. And the further I get away from those years, the more grateful I am that I kind of backed in there, at least as far as I could tell. I stayed in First Baptist Center in North Carolina several years after I finished at Duke in 96, served for a couple of years as a campus minister at Wingate University outside Charlotte, North Carolina, a Baptist college in, in North Carolina, worked for several years at Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond as I was finishing a doctorate of ministry degree there and also serving on the administrative staff. And then for the last 15 years, I've pastored two extraordinary Baptist congregations, 
First Baptist Center in North Carolina, where I returned for a second tour of service, and then for almost nine years, First Baptist Church, Athens, Georgia. So I come to this role as a, as a pastor who loves congregations, who loves congregational ministry. I've told a lot of folks I've met that I am not a burned out congregational minister seeking a new way of serving that I love congregations and their leaders, laying clergy every bit as much as I ever have, if not more. And so that's a part of who I am and what my story is. Uh, my wife, Jennifer, and I have four children. So I'm the first person to ever come to this role to try to fill this calling while also having children at home. Our oldest daughter is 17. Her name's Libby. She'll be a high school senior next year. Our second oldest child is Maria, who starts middle school next year. And then we have twin eight-year-olds, Caroline and Matthew, who will be in third grade. So we've got, you know, a wide range of ages in our house. But all of my children and my wife, Jennifer, all feel their own sense of connection to CBF, the church. It says something about the incredible congregations I've served, that when I shared with my children that I was going to accept this calling, they were both excited because they know and love CBF, but also grieving because I wasn't going to be the pastor of First Baptist Athens anymore. And I have so many ministerial colleagues who, from the stories they tell me, their children would not lament if they walked away from that calling. But my kids did. And it's not because they love hearing me preach that much. It's because the congregations we served have been extraordinary places, not just for me, but for Jennifer and for our kids. And they've had amazing experiences in congregations. But, you know, I've asked people everywhere to, to pray for our family as we seek ways to be faithful to this calling while also being faithful to life's other callings. You've kind of hinted at this in your answer, but through your ministry, what has CBF meant to you? What ways has CBF impacted your ministry? CBF's had a tremendous influence on my ministry. Because I came out of college when I did, and because I backed into Duke Divinity School the way I did, I came out of seminary with a relationship with a couple of Baptist congregations, but with no wider professional or lay network to which I felt any kind of belonging. You know, I noticed folks five, 10 years older than me who were actively engaged in alumni activities from Southern Baptist seminaries or other communities. But those of us who came out of that transitional generation in Baptist life really came out of college and seminary in the early to mid nineties with no real sense of larger connection, very much just embedded in our own journeys and our own congregations. CBF was established as I graduated from Wake Forest. And gradually over time, as I interacted with CBF, first at a state level in North Carolina, and then started attending general assemblies, gradually it became clear that this was my home. And now that I've served in ministry in several different states and held different kinds of ministry positions, the CBF family has become a primary community of belonging for me. Even when I was young, CBF folk 
gave me opportunities to do things that expanded my vision and my sense of the way God works in the world and even the way I could see myself. So I was a doctor of ministry student at Baptist Seminary at Richmond. Tom Graves was the president there at the time. He not only supervised my doctor of ministry project, he invited me to be involved in Baptist Seminary at Richmond's Lilly Endowment Proposal to establish a new way of encouraging youth and congregations to consider God's call in their lives. That's 30 years old. <laughs> and Tom was asking me not just to write that, but because I was a former youth and student minister to chair the process that brought that to life. That introduced me to folks at Passport. That introduced me to folks at CBF in Atlanta. That opened doors for me to be involved in some of CBF's early grants to Lilly Endowment that led to things like peer learning groups and ministerial residency program. A lot of our, we call our Young Baptist ecosystem today got born out of processes like that. So as folks started inviting me to do things, I had access to opportunities I wouldn't have otherwise had. In time, I got to know some of our incredible field personnel in CBF life as I started helping my congregations find ways of doing short-term mission in partnership with CBF field personnel, first in the United States and then in other parts of the world, and watching my congregations fall into closer relationship with our field personnel not only transformed my vision of how congregations could carry out God's mission in our communities and around the world, but also helped me build relationships with Christians in other parts of the world that helped me see church more globally and recognize all the ways that Jesus is already and always at work all around us, inviting us to join in. So by being involved in CBF, I found a Baptist community that has been home for me. Doors of opportunity opened to me through CBF that would never have been open otherwise. And my own faith and my own understanding of church and mission have been profoundly shaped by my involvement in CBF. And I watched my congregations benefit from being related to CBF, both at the state level and through global mission and, more, and national events as well. So those are some of the ways that my involvement in CBF has been important for me. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you've kind of hinted at this with, you graduate from college. Yes. Really right as CBF is being born. Mm -hmm. It's now 27-year-old yeah. movement organization. May 10th is CBF's birthday, by the way. All right. So. Will, that, will that be 27? Yes. Okay, so by the time this airs, 27 years old, That's officially. Right. We're on our own health insurance. We're not 25. <laughs> That's right. Been kicked off. That's right. Uh, you're the fourth executive coordinator. And in many ways, this is part of a movement from that first generation of leadership to a second generation of leadership. You, as you noted, you know, you're the first one that wasn't really already established in their ministry role before CBF was born. Right? That's right. And so... This is a significant time for that or for any organization kind of moving, you know, towards that second generation of leadership, you know, third and fourth generations already starting, starting up. So what's your vision? What do you see for the future of CBF? And, and I think particularly I'm kind of wondering how does the future and maybe even you can talk about some of the present right now. How does that differ from some of those early years where CBF was? So first of all, you're absolutely right. 
my whole ministry life has been lived since CBF was born. I wasn't in the room in Greenville, South Carolina, where the vote was taken that led to establishing Baptist Seminary at Richmond, although my life was changed by that vote. I wasn't in the rooms when the meetings were held that led to CBF being established or named. I was trying to finish college. But I have a profound gratitude for what happened in those rooms. And I think sometimes when we tell the story of what happened in those rooms, we focus on the pain that brought people to those rooms, the experience of loss. But along my own journey toward coming to this role, and even before this was a possibility for me, I came to believe that pain was not the dominant emotion in those rooms. If it had been, nothing would have come out of those rooms other than grief and mutual support. The folks who were in those rooms, some of them not much older than me, some of them a generation or more beyond me, they were seized by a kind of hope that caused them to do what could have been described as an irrational thing. In spite of everything they'd been through, they summoned the courage and the generosity and the faith to try again or to open themselves to something new. And because of that, not only are there people in my generation who have a Baptist home in CBF, there are generations after us. So I don't want to miss any opportunity to name the courage and hope that came out of those rooms. I'm privileged that I've been able to call all three of my predecessors friends. Cecil was one of my teachers at BTSR. He became a colleague when I worked briefly at BTSR. He preached the installation service for me at First Baptist Center in North Carolina. I've often wished that I could have a conversation with him now. I first met Daniel through some of that Lilly Endowment work that I mentioned earlier. I served on the former CBF Coordinating Council late in Daniel's tenure from North Carolina. We hosted him to preach at my church in North Carolina and developed a friendship that lasts until now. I didn't know Susie except by reputation before her called this position, but because I was elected to serve on the first CBF governing board after 2012's reorganization of CBF, we got to know each other quickly and worked together on some significant and challenging projects. And so I've known all of them and respect all of them and carry each of their influence in different ways. But you're certainly right in that I'm not part of their generation. I have friendships of respect and trust in their generation, but I'm certainly not of it. One of the most encouraging things about CBF life right now expressed itself in kind of a funny way after my call to this position was announced. There was a pretty significant sentiment that I was too old for this job. <laughs> and, you know, that, that struck me as hopeful in two ways. First of all, it made me reminisce on the time when I was a young CBFer, when you could put young Baptists and CBF together in, in small booths at restaurants where the General Assembly was taking place. And, that was, and that's if you define young at like, you know, 45. 45 and under, yeah, that's yes. That's right. That's a pretty broad I only graduated from young Baptists pretty recently <laughs> by those original standards. That's right. But now there are growing numbers of younger Baptists who are serving congregations in CBF, who are holding lay leadership in CBF states and regions. There were some folks who suspected both inside and CBF, outside CBF life in our early days, we'd just be a one-generation movement. That's clearly not true. There are gifted women and men many years younger than me 
who have found a home in CBF, who are engaged in CBF leadership, not just at the congregational level, but at the fellowship level all around us. And they're already finding place and finding voice and having influence over our life and our direction. And I think that's really encouraging. I think in terms of this transition that we're in and what does it mean about what might be different for us now going into the future, I think if you look back on Baptist history, not just in CBF, but beyond CBF, you know, as we move through the 20th century, so much of Baptist cooperation was programmatic. I think our cooperation now is moving more toward explicitly missional engagements and much more toward the relational. I think some of our most powerful cooperative opportunities are in things that we might undervalue. So convening and gathering conversations can be a powerful catalyst for transformation. And CBF Global is uniquely positioned to bring people together to meet and dream and plan and imagine just at a relational level. There's some programmatic components to that, but the structure isn't generating a program. It's bringing congregations and their leaders into relationship to bless and encourage and support each other. A relational vision for cooperation is more agile than a programmatic or institutional vision for cooperation. It's, I think, really essential, though, for our thriving in a radically different cultural moment. And so, you know, one of the kind of early questions or early hunches I have is that helping us live into our relational capacity to gather clergy from different places, to gather lay leaders from different kinds of congregations in different parts of the country, foster relationships between Christians in different parts of the CBF community and Christians on the other side of the world for mutual blessing and encouraging and learning. I think relationships are really holy. The Lilly Endowment spent a lot of time and invested a lot of resources to discover that the number one obstacle to excellence in pastoral ministry is isolation, thus the absence of relationship. My hunch is that it's not only isolation that sooner or later destroys pastoral leaders. I believe isolation sooner or later destroys congregations. When I was in Duke Divinity School a long time ago, I learned one of the oldest Christian definitions of sin was the state of being curved in upon the self. Latin, curvatu set in se. But a completely isolated, independent disconnected congregation also becomes curved in on itself. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how our cooperation can become more relational, not just in narrow terms of, well, there are five CBF congregations in the greater Kansas City area, so how can we get them together? But relational across state regional lines, relational across global boundaries, Relational across lines of diversity of thought in a world that so often retreats into echo chambers. 
What does it mean to make ourselves available for a community that only Jesus can bring together and hold together? You mentioned too much Susie on I think you call it difficult and challenging projects. And you've been talking about, you know, conversations and how, how can we have conversations with people across ideological lines, mm -hmm. cultural lines, mm -hmm. all the other dividing, you know, things that we have in our society. And, and so one of the things that over the last couple of years has been an experiment perhaps in that, and that might be one of those difficult, challenging projects you were referring to was the illumination project. Yes. And you served on that ad hoc leadership committee, this 18 month process exploring Questions of ministry and CBF life and human sexuality, very you know, divisive topic, you know, splitting essentially every Christian denomination in our country mm -hmm. right now. So I, I wanted to give you a chance to reflect on that experience. Uh, and I'm not 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 so much the the topic, but the experience of having these difficult conversations. How does that impact your view of cooperation in CBF life? Because in many ways, I know some of this is probably still unsettled. Yes, some of this is very much still unsettled. And I don't, you know, so I think when we, so in unpacking the experience, I think there are several things I want to say about that. I think if you ask any one of us who served on that committee, none of us were hoping to be invited to serve on it. <laughs> you drew the short straw, huh? <laughs> none of us were sitting by our phones hoping we'd get a call from Doug Dorch in Alabama inviting us to say yes to this opportunity to serve Jesus. So I wasn't looking for that opportunity. It was one of the most simultaneously challenging and holy journeys I've ever experienced. The people who were on that ad hoc committee did not come to the room with the same initial thoughts about the assignment that we were given and certainly represented a pretty wide diversity of personal thought and congregational position and practice. And I think had anyone of us been invited just to write an outcome that would impose or make all of CBF look like ourselves or our own congregations, we would have written five or six different documents and none of them are what we came out with. So it was really, it was challenging and encouraging to be in the pl in a place where there was significant difference among those of us who were invited into this. And for 18 months, it wasn't just that we were sitting in the presence of difference beyond that room, it was also in that room. But we came to respect, love. I would, I would describe anyone who was in that process as a friend and as somebody I would trust. We also received incredible, strong, profound, written and spoken testimony from cooperative Baptists who had an incredibly wide and rich diversity of convictions, experiences, stories, testimonies about the questions we were asked to consider. And it was holy in every way imaginable to listen to that. So we went into it. I had the assumption that cooperative Baptists were diverse on questions of sexuality and many other questions, and that there was more to that diversity than we understood going in. And that when the project was said and done, we would still be incredibly diverse. There was never a goal to come out with a one-size-fits-all answer for cooperative Baptists. 
that, that would have run contrary to the assignment we were given. The assignment was not come up with one answer to the, these questions that all cooperative Baptists either have to adhere to or leave. That would not be a Baptist project, by the way. It was understand the diversity of belief and practice and conviction in CBF life and then discern, is there a way to continue cooperating in the presence of that? That was the assignment. If the assignment had been develop a position statement for cooperative Baptists, I would have declined to have served for, for a whole host of reasons. At the end, there were some questions about why didn't you develop a decisive position statement one way or the other that was supposed to be all in or in. That was not what we were asked to do in the first place. As far as what it told me about cooperative Baptists and cooperation, it established for me that among a wide range of cooperative Baptists, there is a desire and a willingness to remain in relationship in the presence of difference, which makes cooperative Baptists a pretty countercultural expression these days because the dominant responses to difference in politics and too often in the Christian community is at best tolerance, more likely retreat into an echo chamber where everybody already agrees and then be confirmed in your position, or demonize and remove the difference. But many, many cooperative Baptists from whom we heard who occupied many different personal experiences and places of discernment said, one of the questions we asked in the interviews we did, we did a number of in-depth two-hour interviews with folks. We also ask in shorter engagements and written responses, are you willing to be in relationship with individuals and congregations who are not in the same place? And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. Overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. And, and there was overwhelmingly a sense that we needed to focus our cooperation on places where Baptists have, have always focused cooperation, even where there were differences on other things like mission or theological formation of clergy and lay leaders and try to have as much of a, a generosity and a hospitality in the presence of difference as we could, trying to be a community to which all congregations who felt called to our mission and our life together could find a home. One of the interesting unexpected learnings, Brian, was that there was a fear of losing a home that ran across our listening. People of very different deep convictions brought a fear that, that the project or the process could lead to an outcome that would make them feel like they had lost a home, which gave an urgency to our process, but it also pointed to a, a pretty powerful truth that a pretty wide range of people felt a sense of connection to cooperative Baptist life that we might not have guessed going in. And so, you know, coming out of the Illumination Project my desire is to see cooperative Baptists focus our cooperative energies on historic cooperative commitments that have often bound Baptists together across diversity, but to try not to have a superficial cooperation, but a cooperation where there could be honesty about difference, where we can love one another in the face of difference. I do really believe strongly that a community that calls itself Baptist but expels us to centers is not really Baptist. And if 
Baptists in our theological core don't have the capacity to be in the presence of, of difference, I'm not sure what other Christian community will. So I think if we can dig deep into our Baptist core, and even more importantly, deep in the core of the love of Christ that doesn't let go, then we can offer a very compelling witness to a world that desperately needs to see that Jesus can gather communities that politicians cannot. You don't need Jesus for a like-minded echo chamber. You don't even need human nature on its best day for a like-minded echo chamber. We see evidence of that all around us. You need Jesus to draw people together in honest, loving, steadfast relationship where otherwise there would be a temptation to split, separate, demonize, squash. 1 Corinthians 13, which we often read at weddings, was not written originally for weddings. It was written originally to try to persuade a church that for cultural, theological, philosophical, political, and economic reasons was getting ready to splinter to stay together. So when I listen to 1 Corinthians 13 these days and I hear its language about bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends, we see through a mirror dimly. I see a way forward in a really conflicted cultural time. The tagline for the show at the beginning is always that, and this is why, why what you're saying really resonates with me, is that we're trying to have these conversations across these denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. Yep. And so there is a sense here of, of how can we be Baptist even when we disagree? Because we're going to disagree. Mm -hmm. But also embedded in that then, I think, gets to this question, and you were talking a moment ago about each church, the, the, the danger of a church becoming independent. Yes. And, and in many ways, if you look at you know, financial giving and other types of denominational interaction, not just CBF Life, every Baptist denomination in the United States, Baptist churches are becoming more and more in practice independent Baptist churches. That's right, right? They're, they're forwarding less of their money to other denominational causes, more That's for correct. their own church ministry. And, and you, you put all of that with what we hear from scholars and people in the media and, and pastors and denominational leaders even, that we live in a post-denominational era. And in this moment, you decided to leave a church and go work for a denominational body. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm suspecting that you don't buy the hype that we're in a post-denominational era, that you must think that there's still a purpose here. Yes, I do believe there's still a purpose here. If by post-denominational era, we mean the, the era of highly programmatic denominations where denominations dictate to congregations leveraging a trust they have not earned and that too often we betray by the things we tolerate or don't confront or don't speak. Yeah, I don't think there's much demand in this cultural moment for that kind of, of larger Christian community. But ever since Jesus started gathering disciples, no one has ever followed Jesus in isolation. The Christian faith, for reasons we might understand or might wake up at night scratching our heads about, has been from its inception communal. We were made in the image of a triune God who, not by choice, but by nature, does God's work in the world 
through a relationship. It seems to me like the Christian faith is at its core essentially communal and cooperative. And for congregations to carry out Jesus' mission in a world that's not just less hospitable to traditional denominations, but less hospitable to all institutions, including congregations, it seems to me that we need a new way forward for congregations to be in relationship together. And so while I don't disagree that certain kinds of denominationalism are in crisis right now, I do not have reason to believe that all of a sudden the Christian faith is going to become individualistic or isolated just because the culture turned. I think the Christian faith is essentially, necessarily, from the beginning, communal. And that means lay people, clergy, congregations need to be in relationship with one another. That also means, at this moment, we have got to lay aside the way of Baptist relationship that pits different Baptist denominational bodies against each other or that invites congregations to to choose one or the other or else. In this moment, that kind of hostility within the Christian community is not a witness to Jesus. I don't think if you look at a world where the fastest growing religious affiliation is not any kind of Baptist, but no affiliation at all. I doubt seriously that I'm going to lead anyone to give their lives to Jesus by demonizing a Baptist of a different Baptist community or by demonizing Christians of a different community. Do we have differences of conscience and conviction and practice? Absolutely. But does that mean that I have to bring a hostility? No. And so I think this moment requires a much more generous kind of ecumenism, both within the Baptist world and beyond the Baptist world. And I think most of us were really honest, 30 or 40 or 50 years of Baptist infighting, has not honored Jesus and it has not reflected the fruit of the spirit. And I think our inability to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is at least one of the reasons that the fastest growing religious affiliation is none. So I think, you know, my hope and prayer would be that we would move to a kind of larger Christian community where we could be true to our own convictions and bear witness as people who know we all see through a glass darkly. And that our hope is in Jesus and Jesus's love and Jesus's life and Jesus's forgiveness and most of all in Jesus's resurrection and move beyond the place where out of insecurity or fear or arrogance or whatever we have to try to move ourselves forward by tearing somebody else down. That sounds like the worst day in middle school. It's not like a witness to a God who raised the dead. So we've covered all the serious stuff. Yeah. I want to note, since we're doing audio only, that you do have 
tie and your jacket on. I know you're getting ready to speak here yeah, for Baptist yeah. Columbia. No tie tomorrow. All, so. all right, all right, all right. But I, I, I did, I did write this question to be: when you take off the tie and jacket, I'm not going to make you do it. But what do you do for fun? <laughs> what do I do for fun? Well, you know, right now a lot of my leisure time activities that I have are spent with my kids. We've got, you know, our, our youngest kids are in soccer season right now. Our middle daughter and our oldest daughter both sing in a children's chorus that's headquartered out of the University of Georgia. They've got a spring concert in a couple of weeks. Uh, our fifth grader is in a school play next Tuesday night. So we spend a lot of time going to their activities. I've never been terribly athletic, but I enjoy watching sports on TV. I've got an eight-year-old son right now who keeps me updated on, you know, who's going to get who's going to get taken in the NFL draft and what kind of football team Georgia's going to have next year, or what kind of football team my Wake Forest team and Deacons are probably not going to have next year. You know, so you know we we really enjoy after school gets out, our family will spend a week just the six of us at the beach, the coast of North Carolina. Those times where we can just be together and enjoy each other have always been holy for us this year. I think it'll be especially, it'll be especially holy. So for me at this stage in my life, family, exercise are two significant ways I spend time when I'm not, when I'm not working. I love music. A less known fact about me is that from the time I was four until I was in my early twenties, I played violin I decided I was not called to be a musician, uh, much less a violinist, but that gave me from very early a love for music. I think some of what I learned in that arena, getting pretty serious about it, enough to know that I wasn't really serious about it, does shape the way I think about preaching and worship and ministry. So it's interesting how things that don't lead where you might have thought they would have at some point still shape the way you see you calling in your life and your relationships. But I, I don't think CBF Communications broke the story that I once played violin. So that's, <laughs> that's don't play anymore, no time. But music is still an important part of my identity, too. We're going to, we, we can have a good clip, big title now of click and listen to believe. Can you believe what instrument Paul Baxley's going to yeah, play at you CBF so, annual no, gathering this no, year? No, no. <laughs> Do not come to Birmingham thinking I would play any instrument because I would be a lousy impersonator of a violinist now. The School of Music would not be happy with me if I did that. All right. All right. Well, we won't expect that. Then. No. Well, well, thank you so much for your time and thank for all that you're doing. Glad to have you here on the program for this conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much, Brian. It's good to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Paul Baxley. You can learn more about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. And come back in a couple days. We'll have a special bonus episode with a sermon that Paul preached recently at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please remember, as always, you can find us at wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And you can just go to our website, wordandway.org, hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our monthly magazine and our website. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform to write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have any comments or feedback, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.